The Americans must succeed. It is not enough to say, I'll try. Your resolve must be, I will. Brigadier General Edwin Winnens, Commander, 64th Brigade, 32nd Red Arrow Division, AEF, Merzargon, October 13th, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 85, Breaking the Kriemhilde Stellung, part one. All right, we're going to kick off with admin Patreon shoutouts to Curtis Fenster Mitternacht, you know who you are, and Robert. Been a while, folks, so let's do the pitch. First of all, Thank you folks so much for signing up to be patrons of the show on Patreon. I really appreciate it. As patrons of Patreon, you will be helping to financially support the podcast. As thanks, you will have early access to all new episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as extra episodes that have not yet been released. Patrons currently have access to an episode on the battle for Fim and Fimet in the summer of 1918, as well as four episodes on the Battle of Tannenberg. If this sounds interesting to you, check us out on patreon.com backslash battles of the first world war podcast. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as a dollar per episode, and it is greatly appreciated. Patrons are only charged when a new episode is released. Shout out to listener Donald, who generously donated to the podcast through PayPal. Thank you so very much, sir. PayPal is another great way to make one-time or recurring donations to the podcast. PayPal is an easy way to donate to the podcast. We have a PayPal button on the website firstworldwarpodcast.com or you can just type in the contact email verdunpodcast at gmail.com into the PayPal website. There are, of course, other non-monetary ways to help the podcast grow. You can review the podcast on iTunes, leaving a starred or written review. That helps a lot. What I'm told really helps is subscribing or following, as Apple calls it these days. If you don't already subscribe to the podcast, go ahead and hit the appropriate button on the podcast app you're using. Then go tell your friends all about the podcast so they can subscribe too. 
Have all your family members subscribe to the podcast, even if they don't listen to it. Nobody in my family listens to my podcast. Uh, make your kids subscribe. I do that too. Okay. And of course, if you're a famous film director with deep pockets, a passion for World War I, and a need to support a, quote, plucky little podcast that could, end quote, with like six or seven figure donations, yo, my DMs are open, y'all. Just saying. Many thanks to Brian, a major in the U.S. Army, who shared with me his monograph, Dawn of the Red Arrow, commemorating the 100th anniversary of the 32nd Red Arrow Division and the Wisconsin National Guard's role in World War I. It has come in very handy for this episode, and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, let's go ahead. Let's get back into the line. As we've discussed in more recent episodes, the American Expeditionary Forces First Army was nearing exhaustion by the middle of October 1918. That exhaustion, of course, was relative. The Americans had not experienced the four shattering years of relentless bloodletting as France, Britain, Germany, and the other belligerents had. But the AEF First Army had hurled, thrust, and battered its massive infantry divisions at the German lines for three weeks, and its units were exhausted and depleted. It wasn't just the green units like the 35th, the 37th, the 79th, and the 91st divisions. The veteran divisions like the 3rd and the 32nd were also being rapidly drained from the reapplication of generally unimaginative attacks against the German defenses in the Meuse. It wasn't just men killed or horribly wounded. It was weeks of poor food and weeks of exposure to the raw and wet Argonne days. Dysentery and the growing flu epidemic were scything the ranks thinner as well. The AEF was headed towards a crisis point. Despite all this, the American doughboys kept throwing themselves into the field of battle, giving their best time after time. Junior officers and NCOs on the ground rapidly improvised new tactics to outflank and outmaneuver the stubborn Germans, and they had long since begun to quietly ignore orders for endless wave attacks with no artillery support. The attacks in the Meuse had to continue, no matter how tired everyone was. The Germans couldn't be allowed to catch their breath. So for this episode... If you're listening and stationary, enter this village name into Google Maps, Romagna. R-O-M-A-G-N-E. You will see more than one Romagna, and two of them are not very far from each other. The one you want is Romagna sous Montfaucon, which translates as Romagna below Montfaucon. The latest plan put in place by the AEF was to have a new double envelopment attack on the Krimhildestellung, the German third position in the Meuse and the most heavily defended. The plan 
was to break through the lines between the villages of Saint-Georges and the Côte d'Amarie hill west of romagne sur montfaucon with the 42nd and 32nd Divisions on October 14, 1918. After the breakthrough, the 42nd Division of 5th Corps would swing right towards the Bois de Benteville to the north. To the east of Romagne, the 3rd Corps would punch through the lines on the Romagne and Cunel Heights with the 5th Division. From there, the Red Diamond Doughboys would swing left towards the Bois de Benteville as well. From there, they'd take Benteville Village itself and then keep pushing until they linked up with the 42nd Division. We'll start on the right this time with the 5th Division. Partially passing through the 3rd Division's lines, the 5th Division had three regiments across. From west to east, the 6th and 11th Infantry Regiments would attack towards the heights between Romagna and Cunel, while the 60th Infantry would take Cunel Village itself. Lieutenant Woodfield's near superhuman efforts had not been enough to liberate the shot-up village. The 4th Regiment in the division, the 61st, would be in reserve. The Germans were apparently tipped off by an American deserter, and they wasted no time. Two hours before the Doughboys launched themselves from their positions, the Germans opened up a massive artillery barrage on their lines and suspected positions. The ground ruptured and rumbled violently, knocking over American soldiers in their dozens. Casualties were already heavy by the time the trench whistles blew. The surviving doughboys left their dead and wounded behind and advanced over the dead of previous days of fighting. German artillery and machine gun fire were almost impossible to get through. South of Canal, the Germans dumped gas and high-explosive shells like their lives depended on it. And, of course, it did. The doughboys of the 60th entered Canal, where they had to root the Germans out, building by ruin, nest by barn. It was a heavy fight. Walk to the back of Cunel Church today, and you can still see the bullet holes peppering the walls. The 6th and 11th faced the same heavy fire, as witnessed by Captain Emil Ganser of the 32nd Division on the left of those regiments. As quoted from Dr. Ed Lengel's To Conquer Hell, Ganser said later, quote, when they approached within gunshot range of the enemy in the trenches, fingers of flame spurt from the muzzle of Mausers and automatics. Men are falling to the ground by the score. The deplorable carnage is appalling, yet the thinning waves come walking on without firing a shot in return. Not until the survivors of the leading waves reach a dry creek bed midway to the trenches do these intrepid doughboys drop into shell pits or hastily dug foxholes and end their costly advance, which could have been attained after dark with scarcely any losses. They are learning the technique of advancing into battle the hard way, the same way as we had to do." End quote. The 6th and 11th regiments managed to cross the D-123 road that runs between Cunel and the American Meuse-Argonne Cemetery, and then went to ground on the reverse slope in front of them. To the right, the men of the 60th clung tenaciously to Cunel. No one 
had come near their objectives. They had paid a bloody heavy price just to get where they were. Dr. Lengel reports in To Conquer Hell that at the end of the day, the 5th Division's effective front-line strength was down to one brigade of men. Everyone else was a casualty, killed, wounded, or missing. Time now to jump to the left front of the attack front, where the 42nd Rainbow Division had taken over from the depleted 1st Division. Formed from the National Guard units of 26 states and the District of Columbia, the division had adopted the Rainbow nickname to recognize that it was formed from all corners of the United States. The Rainbow represented the various parts of the country coming together. You might remember, though, that when the African-American 369th Infantry Regiment had asked to be a part of this division, they had been told that black was not a color in the rainbow, which still stings every time I read it. But the soldiers of the division had seen plenty of action in the Second Battle of the Marne and in the lightning operation at San Miel, and the survivors of those fights knew what the game was about. The division brought with it a reputation as one of the few veteran units in the AEF, and it brought some big names with it as well. 84th Brigade Commander, Brigadier General Douglas MacArthur, Lieutenant Colonel William Wild Bill Donovan, and Father Francis Duffy. These are men we'll get to know much better shortly. The 42nd Division took over the front line from the village of Somerans on the left edge to the northern edge of the part of the Bois de Romagne that stood just south of Côte de Châtillon. The division deployed with the 83rd Brigade on the left, facing the open ground south of the villages of Saint-Georges and Londres et Saint-Georges, and the 84th Brigade on the right, facing the wooded terrain of the Bois de Romagne. The 42nd would soon extend its division eastward, taking over the west half of the Bois de Gênes. Here, the 84th Brigade would face the obstacle of Hill 288 inside the Bois de Gênes. The 42nd's deployment set it up for its attack on October 14th. From left to right on the division's front, the Ohioan 166th Infantry would cross nearly two miles of open ground to get to the village of St. George on the far left. The New York Irish of the 165th Infantry formerly known as the Fighting 69th, would attack over the same open ground towards Londres et Saint-Georges. To their right, the 84th Brigade's Alabamans of the 167th and the Iowans of the 168th Infantry Regiment would attack Hill 288 in the Bois de Gênes. The 84th Brigade attacked at 0530 on the 14th and a heavy fight for Hill 288 broke out. The Alabamans of the 167th saw the worst of it on the west side of the hill. By early afternoon, the crest of the hill had been seized from the Germans. The Doughboys of the 167th pushed north all the way to the Côte de Châtillon, where they drew withering enfilade fire from that dominating hill. Brigade Commander... 
Brigadier General Douglas MacArthur helped lead the attack that day. He has recorded, as having said, if this is good, I'm in it, and if it's bad, I'm in it too. Hearing that the 167th was on the Côte de Châtillon, MacArthur suggested a nighttime bayonet attack on the hill with no artillery preparation beforehand. It was exactly the kind of idea the flamboyant general loved to propose. It had the makings of a hero story for him. Officers below MacArthur balked at the ridiculousness of the idea, and the officers above MacArthur agreed. Châtillon was instead pounded with artillery that night. The 83rd Brigade on the left attacked three hours after the 84th. The doughboys jumped off into the open ground ahead of them, with American and German dead carpeting the ground and shell holes providing the only cover. The kiss of death had fallen on thousands upon thousands of agonized but determined defenders, said Corporal Martin Hogan of the 3rd Battalion, 165th Infantry, later on. Two armies had fought like so many maniacs over every foot of this country, and the horror, the sublime horror of that struggle was written plainly everywhere. With a fresh uniform, gleaming Sam Brown belt and boots and shining medals on his chest, Lieutenant Colonel William Wild Bill Donovan led his fighting Irish from the front. He had already been out the day before reconnoitering the terrain his regiment would attack over. Donovan worried about his right flank in that hill up ahead, the Côte de Châtillon. William Donovan already carried the nickname Wild Bill from his days as a quarterback on the Columbia University football team. Athletic and whip-smart, Donovan had already spent time in Europe working to feed Polish and Belgian civilians. He was an inspirational leader who probably needs his own podcast episode. Donovan had risen through the ranks from commanding a National Guard cavalry troop to a battalion to now the entire old Fighting 69th, which had been federalized as the 165th Infantry. Wild Bill, of course, would go on to head the OSS during World War II and would gain another nickname in later life, America's Spy Master. For now, though, he was commanding his regiment and at the head of his men as they ran into the battle. There is a U.S. Army Signal Corps photo taken of Donovan on September 6, 1918, showing a smart-looking officer with some five o'clock shadowing around his mouth and jaw, a clean uniform, and cloth-covered helmet on his head. I've read that this was Donovan's favorite photograph of his time in the war, and you can see why. He looks like a man you'd follow into the storm. And the Germans gave the Doughboys a storm. Father Francis Duffy the fearless and beloved Catholic chaplain of the 165th, wrote that, From the beginning our men went forward through steady shell fire as their purpose became more clearly manifested. German planes swooped down and machine-gunned the oncoming troops. Donovan's fear of fire from his right flank was realized. 
As soon as we had passed a line abreast of the northern edge of the Bois de Romagna, the jumping-off position of the Alabama Regiment on our right, he wrote later in an after-action report, we began to get fire from the Côte de Châtillon, as well as from the Germans to our front. As the Americans came close to the German lines, the Germans themselves ran out towards them. Cocky crashed into field gray, and life-or-death struggles began as hand-to-hand fights broke out. Corporal Hogan later said, many a beautiful individual fight developed. The men of the 165th got onto the road leading to Londres et Saint-Georges and began to approach the outskirts of the village. Captain Mike Kelly, commanding 1st Battalion, and another officer who was leading from the front, went from cellar to cellar, bombing out defending Germans with his men behind him. The fight apparently extended into the village itself, where they left, quote, their trail through the village filled with German dead, end quote. Despite their best efforts, it wasn't enough. Donovan called on his men to pull back. He realized his flanks were in the air, meaning he had no contact with the units to his left and right. Later, he accompanied men of Captain Kelly's 1st Battalion into positions just 500 meters away from Londres et Saint-Georges, where they prepared for the next day's attack. To the left of the fighting Irish, the Ohioans of the 166th attacked over similarly open ground towards the village of Saint-Georges. Beginning from positions south of the village of Saint-Marence, the doughboys here moved out as light German artillery fell amongst them. Once they got into the woods west of Saint-Marence and in the village itself, enemy artillery fire increased with gas rounds landing amongst the high explosive shells. Men had to stop and don their protective masks before the advance could be continued. The attack towards Saint-Georges was shot down in the ground between it and saint German machine gun fire cut down anyone who showed themselves. By noon, the attack had stopped completely. A second attack was launched in the evening after American artillery fire had dumped fire on the enemy trenches between Saint-Georges and Londres et Saint-Georges. All available guns had fired at their maximum rate to provide as heavy a pounding of the German line as possible. It still wasn't enough. Combat patrols leading the second attack hit the ground as soon as they faced machine gun fire. Despite the American artillery's efforts, German machine gun fire remained heavy. The men of the 166th dug in in the fields south of Saint-Georges, having lost 260 men for a mile's advance northwards. The 42nd Division had very mixed results for the 14th, and of course, the main objectives were not yet achieved. Hill 288 had been taken, but the Côte de Châtillon was still unconquered. On the left front of the division, the 83rd Brigade had had a really rough go of it. Attacks, of course, were planned for the next day. We turn now to the 32nd Division, which was in the center of the attack front. Three of its infantry regiments were in the line from left to right. The 127th, 
the 126th, and the 128th. The 128th was to attack and seize Romagna Sumonfacon, while the 126th was to take on Cote 258 directly west of Romagna, and the 127th was to attack up the western side of the Cote de Marie. On October 13th, the day before the attack, Brigadier General Edwin Winnens, commander of the Red Arrow 64th Brigade, gave a speech to his officers that appears in just about every account of the 32nd Division in the Meuse, so this podcast won't be an exception. Soldiers of the front line, 32nd Division, Winnens said, A few hundred yards to the north of you, the remnants of the decimated, cracked divisions of the German army are clinging desperately to the pivotal point of their bruised and broken line, on which hangs the fate of their emperor and the empire. The 32nd Division was sent to this sector to shatter that line. You are shock troops, les terribles, the French call you. Fighting sons of guns, the Americans call you. You are the very flower of our army. You that remain up there on the front have been tried by fire. The skulkers have skulked. The quitters have quit. Only the man with guts remains. Shells? Shell casualties are only 3% of the total. Tired? You have been in the line two weeks. Your enemies have been in five weeks. Prisoners say they have gone through hell. The 32nd Division is going ahead when the 1st Army attacks. We're three regiments abreast with one in support. Each is echeloned in depth. One battalion behind the other, except the one on the extreme right. That one mops up Romagna. The others go forward. This formation will give you driving power. The Americans must succeed. It is not enough to say, I'll try. Your resolve must be, I will. The American guns went off at daybreak. And once the guns lifted, quote, This man was beckoning to my squad, Private Horace Baker wrote in his memoir, Argonne Days. And, muttering to the other boys, well, I guess we'd better go, I started forward. The other boys went alongside. When we came to our big, burly corporal, he was in tears. He could not go, for he was wounded. So we three set out without a leader, but just as we were surmounting the embankment rake, the man on my left stiffened and fell heavily. I thought almost flippantly, poor fellow, he's dead. Then I looked to the front. Instead of a company marching gloriously, as I had supposed I would see, the boys were strung out over the hillside and in shell holes or prone on the ground and all banging away with their rifles. So I plunged into the first shell hole, which happened to be a very small one. It was made by a one-pounder shell. But a small place was better than none, so I began my part of the battle there. The boys laughed at me as long as I was with them, for I had my feet hidden and thought I was completely concealed from the enemy. To my great surprise, down in the valley directly ahead of us was a large village. It was Romagna Sumonfacon, but I did not know it for some days. 
The main thing now was not what place it was, but how to get the Germans out of it, end quote. Baker, manning a show-show machine gun he barely knew how to fire, advanced towards the village under fire, thinking all the while, and this is a battle. This is a battle. I'm a participant in a battle. As the doughboys of the 128th broke into the ruins of Romagna, the 127th, on the 32nd Division's front left, attacked up the dominating Côte de Marie. Folks, today you can park at the entrance to Transvaal Farm at the southern end of that hill and walk the Red Arrow Trail along the crest of this incredibly steep hill. My man, Mihil and I walked at least two-thirds of that trail on an impossibly hot day this past July. The inside curve of the croissant-shaped hill was incredibly steep, and it was hard to imagine facing that damned hillside under murderous fire from above. After the second information kiosk on the trail, there are just some incredible German trenches snaking through the crest. 104 years later, and they are still clearly visible, and still some five to six feet deep, with textbook sharp traverses. I've never seen such well-constructed trenches and in such good shape after so long. These trenches, of course, were part of the hardest German position in the Meuse-Argonne, the Krimhilde Stellung. C Company 127th Infantry Commander Captain Paul Schmidt took part in the renewed assault on Dame Marie. From his history titled Company C, 127th Infantry in the World War, a story of the 32nd Division and a complete history of the part taken by Company C, Schmidt wrote, quote, Promptly on schedule, the barrage started at daybreak, October 14th. Companies A, B, and C were lined up in assault formation, but an inspection of the rear showed that neither the 2nd nor 3rd battalions were in sight. Obeying orders, we went over the top. Everything appeared quiet and serene until we reached a point midway between our former position on the hill and the ridge occupied by the Germans, when some officer carelessly blew a whistle which apprised the enemy of our presence. Immediately, a storm of machine gun bullets from the crest of the ridge swept our lines with terrible effect. Men fell like pins struck by a ball on a bowling alley. But notwithstanding this furious fire, the troops courageously advanced towards the enemy's line. Climbing through the wire entanglements, the troops swept on with such desperate energy that the Germans were forced out of their trenches and over the ridge. But our battalion was broken and the men scattered. Some, advancing too far, were captured by the Germans. Sergeant Christ Reinhardt and Private Frank Zorman of Company C were among the number. Part of our wounded were taken to the first aid station by members of the 168th Infantry, who were on our left, and the balance were carried back to Gênes. Unable to advance, Schmidt pulled his surviving troops back to Hill 286 to the west of Côte de Marie. He needed more support if he was to take this crouching beast of a hill. 
As Captain Schmidt hunkered down after his failed assault, the men of the 126th Infantry in the division center also staggered to a halt under terrific fire from Côte de Marie. Headlong attacks on the German lines just weren't working, no matter what the division, corps, and army commands wanted. The doughboys on the ground needed to find a better way to break through, but they had to take a moment and think and look. From a post-war history titled Tales of the 32nd by G.W. Garlock, former commander of the 128th Infantry, comes the story of innovation under pressure. Quote, on October 14, 1918, the 126th Infantry broke through the German defense by a brilliant exploit carried out by seven men and an officer. The 3rd Battalion of this regiment found a gap in the wire and pushed across to the German trenches on Hill 258, which forms the southeast spur of Côte de Marie. Shells and machine gun bullets took heavy toll because the Germans knew of this break in the wire and had it covered. Further advance seemed to be ended by fire from the trenches on the main ridge to the northwest. After several attempts to push ahead had broken down, the battalion commander sent out a combat patrol from Company M with orders to clean out the machine guns on the east end of Côte de Marie. The patrol of seven men was led by Captain Edward B. Strom, a brilliant young officer. They crawled and scrambled up the steep slope under heavy fire. They found shelter and shell holes and concealed themselves behind trees. The Bosch fired everything they had, but in their agitation and astoundment at the audacity of the little group, their shooting was wild and high. The patrol had a supply of rifle grenades which can be thrown 150 yards. For once, these grenades and all the needed accessories were in the right place. The patrol succeeded in dropping several grenades among the machine gunners, killing many and capturing others. Almost supernatural luck aided them. Not a man in the patrol was killed, although they captured 10 machine guns on the ridge and either killed, captured, or put their crews to flight. In the whole war, I know of no exploit which more profoundly influenced the course of a great battle. The patrol, of which every member was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, consisted of Captain Edward B. Strom, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Sergeant Frank H. Raymond, Fremont, Michigan, Corporal Albert S. Kashikva, Alto, Michigan, Private First Class Charles L. Beck, Westphalia, Indiana, Private First Class William A. Edsall, Muskegon, Michigan, Private First Class Tom D. Carps, McGill, Nevada, Private First Class Frederick W. McClemens, Crafton, Pennsylvania, and Private First Class Albert R. Neitzel, St. Francis, Kansas. The 2nd and 3rd Battalions of the 126th followed the patrol along the ridge and then pushed north to their objectives. 
To fully understand the value of this exploit, you must recall that a quarter of a mile westward, two battalions of the 127th had been stopped in front of this Côte de Marie ridge. The 127th finally reached its objective that night by following the 126th through the gap and marching around the rear of the hill. These maneuvers forced the Germans to give up the rocky citadel. End quote. Captain Strom, Sergeant Raymond, Corporal Kshikva, and Privates Beck, Edsall, Karps, McClemens, and Neitzel had torn a permanent hole in the mighty Kriemhilde Stellung. With the retreat from Côte de Marie, this was a growing hole the Germans would not be able to reseal. It was battlefield ingenuity on recognizing that the better way to breach the line was to sneak a small patrol through that gap. It was some damn good soldiering on the part of that patrol that they ripped through the German defenses without losing a man. It is here that the turn of the tide begins and the Meuse are gone. For those of you interested in next year's tour with Lost Battalion Tours, Rob and I are working on pinpointing the area where Captain Strom and his men broke through the line. We hope to take you there in 2023. The attacks of October 14, 1918 weren't yet over. While Côte de Marie had been taken, a fight was developing just to the west on the Côte de Châtillon. The 42nd Division had to clear that hill which was another link in the Kriemhilde defenses. For part two of Breaking the Kriemhilde, that's where we're going. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at www1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.